Welcome back to another exciting week of Trashy Divorces. Welcome back to Trashy Divorces, friends. I'm Alicia. I'm Stacy. We're so glad you're here. We are. Have a seat. Get comfortable. We're going to have Seriously. some fun this week on Season 6 No Rules. Pour some coffee. Pour some postum. Pour a drink. <laughs> you pulled out postum the other day. I can't do caffeine at night. Oh like, I cannot. But yeah, I, I did. I had postum last night. This week, my heart will go on. Who's that by? Oh, God. <laughs> What's that from? Uh, Tell me more. A movie from your trashy divorce profile where two people could have fit on that door, Jimbo Cameron. Just saying. The Celine Dion classic from Titanic. Sure. I kept struggling about a John Lennon song to use, and I'm like, you know what? Nope. My heart will go on. That's the theme song for the week. Fair. Fair. Yeah. So yeah, I did uh, James Cameron this week. Five marriages, four divorces, and not a great guy to work with, it turns out. Really bad boss. And uh, my golly, has Linda Hamilton said some funny things about him. So that happened. Uh, it was a good story. Yeah. Yeah. You you went deep diving back into a guy who had a thing for bugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This week I covered the Trashy divorce of John Lennon and his first wife, Cynthia, which is, oh God, it's a classic trope all on its own in a thousand different ways. Season six, no rules. We draw who we draw. It was an often requested listener mm. divorce. Yep. And yeah, oh, it goes how it goes. Goes how it goes. Don't make it bad. Hey, before we get started, let's yeah. do some big thank yous. For our Patreon audience, we had some new Patreon people join us we this do, week. We uh, do. This week in the Magic Mirror, we would like to say thank you to Patty, Joe, oh, please, I hope I pronounced this correctly, Shorsten. I listened to some internet recordings. It's uh, amazing. Mm -hmm. Christina S., Jordan B., Diana P., and Sarah L., thank you all so much. Thank you all so much. We have a new super supporter, Allison P. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Speaking of pronunciations, <laughs> this week I started my April in Paris series on Patreon with Edith Piaf, mm -hmm. La Vian Rose. Uh, you did, you really, you went hard at correct French pronunciation. It was, it was lovely. What else happened this week? We put out Trashy Tutors, Arabella Stewart. Oh, yeah. And ooh, I did the dirty digs on Falling Water. Oh, the yeah. The follow up yeah, yeah. about the first cousins who built. The home, sure. Falling Water, that Frank Lloyd Wright. There were a lot of the Frank Lloyd Wright and Tiger tidbits. Married first cousins, like you do. That was a good story. <laughs> this week, we have more April in Paris. Mm -hmm. You have Church of the Flaming Dumpster Fire. Mm -hmm. All kinds of fun stuff I happening got, over there. Stuff. We're ad-free this week. We are brought to you by our amazing patrons this week. Thank you. That is. You have an ad-free episode mm -hmm. brought to you by all of our new and existing and amazing patron audience. Thank you for being there. Don't forget, we're releasing new episodes every week on Patreon. Where do you find them, Stacey? bit.ly slash trash candy quarantine. Plug that into your browser and there's a whole catalog that comes up. Just hit play on whatever. If you have a little extra time and you need something to do, we got a bunch of trash candy out there for you. Thank you to our Patreon audience. Thank you to our Sunday audience. Y'all are simply the best. Thanks for joining us for another week. Everybody get comfortable. Yeah. Let's get into it. Let's go, go, go.
So, Stacy, today you're going to tell me the story of the maybe Trashy Divorces All-Star. He's got a lot of them, but I will never forgive him for the directorial decision because both of them could have fit on that door in the sea, and I'm still <laughs> mad about it. So you're already working from a stacked deck here, um, my Yes, friend. I... Uh... I have the delightful and heartwarming tale <laughs> of film director James Cameron. I cannot wait. He is, I think, a Trashy Divorces all-star. He is he's on his fifth marriage, although this one has lasted 20 years now. So oh, that's good. Perhaps he's done. Perhaps. Perhaps. Perhaps two of them could have fit on that door. I have a few tales from that production, that film Titanic that you're talking about. Tell us all. Is everybody comfortable? Grab a seat. Grab a seat. Let's go. Grab a seat. Oh, my God. There's a cat in an awkward position here. Alicia, have you ever had a bad boss? Yep. Most of us at one time or another have had the displeasure of working for someone completely unfit to lead others. But today we're going to talk about a guy who takes bad bossery to a whole other level. Oh, no. Film director James Cameron. Not only is he a terrible boss, but he's also had a really rough road with wives, of which he's had five, including a remarkably trashy ride with actress Linda Hamilton of the Terminator franchise. She of Goddess Stock. Did you say Goddess Stock? Mm-hmm. Nice. Is that a is that a music festival? Yeah, Goddess <laughs> it Stock. It should be. <laughs> Linda Hamilton is the headliner. She's amazing. If you don't know Jim Cameron by name, you are certainly familiar with his work. He is the mind behind The Terminator, Titanic, Avatar, True Lies, among others, in a career that has also landed him a treasure trove of awards, including Oscars for Best Picture, Best Director, tons of special effects awards. That's kind of his wheelhouse. He's not just an outstanding filmmaker, he's also an innovator and inventor with rich guy side hobbies like deep sea exploration sure he is or designing cameras for nasa's mars rovers although the rovers left earth without his cameras because there was not time enough to adequately test them oh my possibly because of cameron's habit of running over budget and over schedule we'll get to that interesting he's got to be a fire sign He's a Leo. Ah, fantastic. There you go. go. So he's also legendarily difficult to work with and almost (laughs) like cartoon villainishly hard on the people who work for him, including actors. Let's talk about it. Oh, goody. James Francis Cameron hails from our neighbor to the north, Canada, Nice. and is probably the most famous person ever to come out of Capus Casing, Ontario. I think it's a little timber town. Fantastic. He was born August 16, 1954, Leo. Leo. And he is, I think this is the perfect mix of parental things for him. His father is an electrical engineer. His mother, well, maybe was, not not sure. Anyway, dad was an electrical engineer. Mom was a nurse who had a passion for the arts and was an artist in her spare time. If you fuse engineering and art, you pretty much end up with a film director who maximizes special effects right jimbo Mm -hmm. jimbo yep (laughs) he's the oldest of five and i gather his family moved around quite a bit when he was young as a teenager they relocated to southern california about 30 miles from los angeles fantastic this is great young jim i mean young jimbo uh (laughs) 
Linda Hamilton does call in that later. <gasps> does she really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. Young Jimbo was a nerd who liked to build things and liked to blow things up. Um, this was basically my peer group as a child <laughs> in Nerd Haven, where I was raised. <laughs> so, like, I'm reading about he he was always like making like volcanoes with uh, like baking soda and vinegar as a kid was like his favorite thing. Anyway, so build things, blow them up. Build things, blow them up. That I'm was the build things, blow them up, gang. <laughs> that was my gang in high school. <laughs> build things, blow them up. <laughs> That's my gang. He starts college um, <laughs> as he he starts college as a physics major, switches to being an English major, drops out, huh? drove a truck for work, and at night wrote for love. And then in <laughs> 1977, he was one of the millions and millions and millions and millions of people who thronged to theaters to see Star Wars. Well, sure. Huzzah! The experience was clarifying. George okay, Lucas. What's funny is you said it was your previous gang, but <laughs> still just by gang. that huzzah and the tone of that <laughs> and the Zoom call that you had. Oh, sure. With this gang who likes to build things and, and blow, blow them things up. up. Just, mm-hmm. just a mere few days ago. <laughs> I'm going to say that that's still your gang. Yeah. No, the yeah. Uh, the Nerd Haven Alumni Association is strong. Build it. If you build it, we will blow it up. (laughs) So Star Wars really kind of like got to him because George Lucas was doing what he himself wanted to be doing with special effects in film. So basically he sees the movie, he quits his job and he... um, (laughs) Seriously? Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. He convinces a bunch of dentists... (laughs) To give him money for a tax break. I don't know how the, I don't know if this is a California thing. If you fund a film, it's a write off. I don't know. But he convinces a bunch of dentists to give him money and they do. And he makes his first short film called oh my God. Xenogenesis. Oh my God. Yeah. It's okay if you haven't seen it. <laughs> it was like, it was a learn as you go thing for young James and some friends. But it turned out well enough that B-movie king Roger Corman put him to work making miniature models for Roger Corman Studios. Fantastic. So, boom, he's Great. got a gig in actual Hollywood. So he ends up art directing the film Battle Beyond the Stars. Ooh. I feel certain I saw that as a child at some point. Like, there's just no way I did not see that movie at some point. Probably with your gang. Maybe with my gang. <laughs> uh, and then he ran special effects for John Carpenter's Escape from New York in 81. Fantastic. Cool. All right. He gets his directorial debut. 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 I need um, to figure out something to say besides fantastic. <laughs> we're both a bit loopy today. It's a, it's a weird day. Okay. He has his directorial debut. In 1982, with, of course, Piranha 2, The Spawning. I mean, tip of my tongue. uh, The first director had left because of creative differences with the producer. Uh, So there's a book called James Cameron Interviews that is a collection of interviews with James Cameron. So this sort of sets the stage for this is like a nightmare of a movie. Uh, Spoilers the piranhas have learned to fly. Uh, okay, so 
Quote, he arrived on the set in Jamaica to find a crew that only spoke Italian and a production so poorly prepared and underfinanced that there wasn't even a costume for one of the stars, Lance Henriksen. At dinner one night, he and Henriksen bought the uniform right off their waiter. To make sure there were enough rubber piranhas, Cameron stayed up late every night making them himself. Cameron also had creative differences <laughs> with the producer and ended up flying to Rome to fight with him about it in person. Uh, apparently, the dude had a letter opener on his desk. The Jacques and, Hughes. Well, and yeah, and like Jim Cameron got so like animated and agitated that it, the guy like was holding it up to defend himself. He was afraid Cameron would come over the desk and attack him. <laughs> over Piranha too, the spawning. Um, I'm just saying, don't let anybody ever doubt that your idea is brilliant. <laughs> okay, because so... Because if the spawning Piranha 2 can get made... You're not kidding. You're not go kidding. Go for your dreams, whatever they are. I mean... Wow. Imagine that. There was a franchise of Piranha movies. No, the funnier part is the creative differences over oh, yeah. the flying... No, no. The even funnier part is how far... Live your dream, people. Live your dream. Jim Cameron takes this. So he's in Rome. He's staying in a hotel. He is fighting with the Italian financier, basically, behind the movie. Natch, like you do. And I guess he wanted to see a cut of the movie. Because <laughs> okay. the producer, was, I think, was cutting it differently than he would have. Cameron ends up breaking into the editorial studio. <gasps> Not just once, but like no. night after night and recuts this, I'm assuming, dumpster fire of a movie. Do the people who come in the morning know that he's recut the last part? I don't think they do. So <clears throat> this is. <laughs> he also. He, this is the best story I've ever heard. He got the flu while he was over there. He was also dead broke. He was he like. When he was going back to his hotel room, he would pick, like, rolls and stuff off of trays, like, room service trays that had been left in the hallway. It was, it's one of those stories. Anyway, he gets the flu, and this is, literally, he has a fever dream that turns into the Terminator script. <laughs> I'm not joking. No. <laughs> okay. Notably, Jim Cameron had a first marriage. We are gathered here today to discuss these. <laughs> So uh, his first marriage played out during this phase of his professional life. In 1978, he married Sharon Williams. She was a waitress at a burger joint. And this detail actually works its way into um, the screenplay for Terminator. Fantastic. And her little, her little dog. Oh, and, her, and your was, little dog, too? Was in Terminator, yeah. So after Piranhas 2 and <laughs> this adventure in Rome, uh, he, he gets to work trying to sell the script for the Terminator that he has written. But he's a nobody in Hollywood. I mean, despite the smashing success of Piranhas 2, The Spawning. <laughs> I think when it was released, it, they actually retitled it Piranhas 2 Flying Killers, but I guess that gave away too much. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> so... <laughs> so uh, nobody nobody wanted to buy the Terminator from the Piranhas 2 guy. So Damn he uh, that. eventually he works out a deal with another alum of the Roger Corman Studios, Gail Ann Hurd, 
who agrees she's got her she's set up her own production company she agrees to purchase the terminator script for one dollar oh uh and the promise that he will direct like that was really i think that was actually his big interest was like sure he wrote the script that matters but his big deal was he wanted to direct the movie okay he saw the future <laughs> so then it was time to find a studio to make the magic happen and this what was year is this? 1983 uh, I think. there's plenty of drugs around okay go ahead oh yeah no doubt well and like who who doesn't want to finance a movie about a time traveling cyborg assassin take my money here <sighs> it is so the uh, experience of attempting to get a studio to make this movie looked a lot like um, doors being slammed in his face. And so after all the big studios had passed, he was able to convince Hemdale to take it on. Then, then there was casting. And so uh, Michael Bean, Bain, B-I-E-H-N, Michael Bean, anyway. Let's cut that, Michael Bean. I just... He was in Aliens, too. Anyway, you've got a good guy. you got a bad guy, Arnold. Uh, and um, they're duking it out over Linda Hamilton's Sarah Connor, who Arnold was sent back in time to kill because she would be the mother of the savior of humankind against the cyborgs. I mean, come on. This is actually a very easy concept to grasp. Build things. Blow them up. <laughs> The movie worked. It grossed $78 million in box office on a budget of $6.5 million. Oh, wow. Became an instant classic. And during delays, because Arnold was doing like the Conan movies or something, there was a bit of a delay before his schedule opened up. Jim Cameron is busily writing. The dude had three desks set up. On one desk, he's doing rewrites for The Terminator. On the second desk, he's writing Rambo First Blood Part Two. And on the third desk, he's writing Aliens. Fantastic. And so he would divide his workday into three sections. He would move from desk to desk throughout the day. He would change the music. Each screenplay got its own score in his, <laughs> his workflow. So, yeah, we're going to say 1983 and 1984 was a pretty creatively solid period for James Cameron. With work that fast-paced and the sudden success of the Terminator, marriage number one went up in flames. He and Sharon divorced in 1984, and a year later, he married none other than Gail Ann Hurd, who had paid a dollar for the Terminator script and let him direct. Wow. Okay. There's Jimbo. a There's a pattern developing. Oh, oh oops. Here. I did it again. Okay. So with his new wife, with wife number two, he made Aliens in 1986, and Sigourney Weaver is a huge fan of his work. Uh, Gotta stop. Understandably. Yeah, seriously. Sigourney Weaver's amazing. Yeah. Lance Henriksen is in that as well, I believe. As is Michael Bean. I don't know if that's how his name Bain. is said. Behan. Behan. We do the best we can. Let's all just be kind. Game over, man. Nuke it from space. It's the only way to be sure. It, Nuke it, it from orbit. Yeah, like... Stop. I... <laughs> I didn't quite realize that James Cameron um, produced much of my childhood viewing, uh, but he did, it turns out. Okay, in 1989, they made The Abyss together, after which they, too, divorced. 
He would later describe the dynamics of his romantic relationships as picking strong women who don't need him, so one day they realize they don't need him. I believe the fact that he moves on before the last one is over also contributes to the end of things, but Gail Ann Heard, meanwhile, put it a little bit differently, explaining that when she did need him, he's the kind of guy who gives you a lot of space. Oh. <laughs> I don't need to be needed that much. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, months after the divorce is finalized... He marries again. To who? Catherine Bigelow, film director. Okay. Made Point Break. I think he he produced a bunch of movies that anyway, but yeah, they worked together and thus did. He's a he's a real he's a fall in love where you work mm -hmm. kind of guy. What do they say? Dipping your pen in the company inkwell, something like that. Anyway. It happens. He gets his creative juices going, and then he falls in love with whatever woman is standing near him. I mean, that the artistic fervor. It happens. I wouldn't know a thing about that looking <laughs> across the table at you. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Jim ah. Cameron at work. Jimbo. Because it's awesome. So Arnold Schwarzenegger, who has obviously worked with him on a lot of films and was also raised by a tyrannical, abusive father, really got him. Arnold says, quote, he's not the kind of guy who will try to say things in a diplomatic way. If you do something right, he'll say it was disastrous, but probably a human being could do no better. If he was dealing with machines, they could do better. So you walk away going, I guess he likes it. (laughs) For the abyss, uh, he found an abandoned nuclear power plant. It was, it had not, it was not finished yet. It wasn't that it had been a nuclear, anyway. They didn't have to deal with nuclear waste in the process of this. He found an abandoned nuclear power plant and built the largest underwater set ever constructed. Each section weighed 40 tons. Whoa. They filled the containment units with 10 million gallons of water. And then they had to design kind of on the fly a filtration system to keep it clear for the duration of the shoot. They had this massive tarp manufactured and like they had to crane it over the top of the containment units so that it would be adequately deep sea dark. His brother Mike is an aeronautical engineer and worked with him to invent a bunch of things that they needed for the shoot. So they came up with this diver propulsion vehicle for the cameras so that they wouldn't need like to build underwater dolly tracks and like have underwater cranes and stuff. Anyway, so that like apparently the brothers over the years have five patents for film like technical equipment that they've invented just to meet the needs for his sort of crazy <laughs> film adventures Fever dream imagination that yes. is incredible okay so here is how interviewer john richardson describes the making of the abyss in the james cameron interviews book quote filming underwater proved to be incredibly arduous the water was so highly chlorinated that it burned skin and turned hair white even the mundane details were complicated. How does a script supervisor work underwater? By covering each page in plastic. How do you take a bathroom break underwater? By peeing right into your wetsuit. <gasps> this apparently infuriated no, the actors. Bitty. Yeah, he was like, no. you guys are wasting too much time going to the bathroom, so hop to. No. Did I tell you about the filtration system I designed? Anyway. I don't want to pee in my wetsuit. <laughs> 
The actors were stretched to the breaking point when the camera ran out of film in the middle of her death scene. Oh, no. Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio stormed off the set screaming, we are not animals. Ed Harris tells in the Abyss's fascinating Laserdisc special edition of a day so hard he burst into tears on the drive home. Neither actor would return calls for this story. <laughs> the writer notes. <laughs> so I'm betting this guy was a real peach with his wives. Uh, he's 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 pretty cool. Uh, and this bathroom thing is a real bugaboo. That is gross. For Jimbo, when he, when he made True Lies with our best friend Jamie Lee Curtis. I wonder if Jamie Lee Curtis would be excited to know that she did. We did, in fact, meet her dog. We on the streets of Charleston, but we did not meet her, True. even though she was there. Like, we were out for that morning, and we found the cutest fluffer. We're not going to tell the story. Okay. I'll start that paragraph over. Great. The bathroom thing is apparently a real bugaboo for, for Jimbo. When he made True Lies with Arnold and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis Again, and others. got us. Uh, he notified everyone on set that going to the bathroom was a fireable offense. <laughs> That is not true. That is that is true. That is true. Ooh. I have later. I have some commentary from him that about firing that m- makes this seem contradictory. But he apparently did fire people who he felt were taking excessive bathroom breaks. Wow. Okay. The crew on the abyss had it no better than the actors. One of the jokes that they would commiserate with on set was, "Jim, let you breathe. What more do you want?" <laughs> Here's how Andrew Gumbel at The Independent described the filming for Titanic. Quote, when the production moved to Mexico and literally thousands of extras and stuntmen reenacted the sinking of the Titanic on a replica built to 90% scale, Cameron imposed a work regime that left everyone else reeling. After spending hours each day standing waist deep in chilly, dirty Pacific seawater, many cast members came down with colds, flu, or kidney infections. (gasps) Several left rather than endure the rigorous conditions any longer. Three stuntmen suffered broken bones. Oh, my God. Kate Winslet, who starred opposite Leonardo DiCaprio, was so shell-shocked by the experience, she called it an ordeal, that she told one interviewer before the film even came out that she would not work with Cameron again unless it was, quote, for a lot of money. She has since worked with him again. (laughs) She came down with flu after enduring the cold water, almost drowned at one point. Oh, my God. And suffered numerous other injuries. Quote, I chipped a small bone in my elbow, she told the LA Times. And at one point, I had deep bruises all over my arms. I looked like a battered wife. Okay, so this is how she describes Cameron. He's a nice guy, but the problem was that his vision for the film was as clear as it was. He has a temper like you wouldn't believe. As it was, the actors got off lightly. I think Jim knew he couldn't shout at us the way he did to his crew because our performances would be no good. Whew. Uh, Here's how Cameron describes his approach to the people working for him. Quote, if an NFL coach didn't browbeat the guys and say you fucked up and you didn't do this, I mean, it's perfectly acceptable in sports that mistakes and laziness should not be tolerated. If you're working on a big movie, it must imply that you're the best. You presented yourself as a varsity athlete, so fucking be one. That's my philosophy. What a way to lead, man. What a way to lead. On the firing thing, yeah, the interviewer here um, Mm. asks, like, you know, so everybody gets their heads chopped off, right? Like, you fire a lot of people. And he was like, I would never do anything as merciful as firing someone. (gasps) 
for fucking up, you have to stay to the end. <laughs> yeah, he's a peach. Uh, the Abyss ended up over budget. Cameron shot at least three separate endings and over schedule, another feature of Jim Cameron Productions. Studio execs grew increasingly frantic, and when it was released, reviews were mixed, but it made 90 million bucks and won an Oscar for Best Visual Effects. <laughs> when he made Terminator 2 afterward, he had not mellowed at all. The crew made up an unofficial t-shirt with the slogan, Terminator 3, not with me. <laughs> Another version read, you can't scare me, I work for Jim Cameron. <laughs> Alright, so in 1989... Cameron's marriage to Gail Ann Hurd ended, and he immediately married fellow filmmaker Catherine Bigelow, a union which only lasted a couple years. And again, Jim Cameron wasted no time oh, moving no. on. Oh. Meanwhile, the actress who had brought Sarah Connor to life was herself dealing with a divorce. Married to actor Bruce Abbott since 1982, in 1989, Linda Hamilton was pregnant with their son when Bruce left. Hamilton, born September 26, 1956, a Libra, was having professional success at the time, playing opposite Ron Perlman in Beauty and the Beast, a role that earned her Emmy and Golden Globe nominations. So during the first Terminator, her relationship with Jim Cameron had been prickly at best. She said that when the movie finished shooting, she thought, well, that man is on the side of the machines. <laughs> I mean, I guess he still had bathroom breaks in the first Terminator, but not for the second one. Not for the second one, honey. All right, so You're when he have to hold it or go in your wetsuit, right? Yeah, when Jeez. he came calling for T two, she was excited about how the character had evolved. So instead of like frightened victim Sarah Connor who doesn't know what the hell is happening, she was now fierce and empowered Sarah Connor Badass. who was yeah. going to defend her child. Yeah, Fantastic. Um, and also she got shredded as hell for the role. And has ever after had to live with what she describes as the single word, Linda Hamilton arms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bless so, her heart. Yeah. By the time T2 came out in 91, she was living with Jim. <laughs> of course she was. She, of course, was. Uh, they had a daughter together in 93. Okay. And in 1997, while he was filming Titanic, he left her. Oh, my. For someone working in Titanic. Someone working on Titanic for an actress in Titanic, Susie Amos. Oh. Then he came back. Oh, to Linda? Uh-huh. Linda Hamilton Arms? Mm-hmm. Linda Hamilton Arms. Welcomed him back. Yep. I guess she was doing Dante's Peak around that time. Okay. Anyway, yeah. Welcomes him back, and you know what they decide to do? You know what's going to fix their marriage? Get I'm sorry. You know what's going to fix their relationship? Have a baby or get married. They've They're, already had a baby, so I guess it's had get married. A, they got to get married. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, I have that in all caps, for some reason, they decide to get married. Uh, eight months later... Jim Cameron goes back to Susie Amos, <laughs> who, in fairness, has been his wife now for 20 years. So and that is, you know, awesome. Congratulations on wedded bliss, Jimbo. I will now present the section of my story that I call things Linda Hamilton has said about Jim Cameron in recent years. Oh, goody. <laughs> because she was in a, another Terminator in 2019. That All he right. did? He produced it. It was directed by Tim Miller. Interesting. Um, but it was her first time reprising the role. She's done voiceover work for other Terminator sequels, but this was her first time back since T2, really. I am Sarah Connor. Continue. Yeah. 
Okay, so quote, the woman he can't get is always his dream girl. Oh. Work and women go hand in hand for Jimbo, and I should know. Oh, Jimbo. <laughs> of their marriage, she says, it was terrible on every level. Oh. I wasn't ready. He wasn't ready. He was terribly insecure that I was going to ruin it for him somehow, which didn't even make sense. Since I'm an actress in my own right and had been in front of the camera, it was dreadful. <laughs> Yikes. Um, when they were fighting, Jim would move out. And I'm apparently they sure. fought a lot. So Jim would move out. And then he would instruct his assistant to go to the house and pack up his home gym and take it to wherever he had moved to. And then when they got over the fight, he would move back in and make his assistant pack up his home gym and move it back. And uh, Assistants are not paid anywhere near enough in the scheme of things nope. to do this kind of nonsense. Nope. So she says, quote, it got to the stage where I said, let me at least keep the gym because this is getting very expensive. Um, okay. Uh, he used to say to me, anybody can be a father or a husband. There are only five people in the world who can do what I do. And I'm going for that. I have to say that is not entirely unreasonable. Like you can still be okay as a husband and father. <laughs> but I mean, if you are genuinely one of five people in the world who can do a thing that's super lucrative, I guess it's not terrible if that's where you put your focus. I mean, complicated, right? Because you're, like, clearly have failed on one side, but clearly have succeeded on the other. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so of the end of their relationship, she says, Titanic was the mistress he left me for. Oh. He was He was the kind of man who really would rather be at work with the mistress than at home with the wife. That was hard to come to terms with. When they divorced in 1999, Linda walked away with a $50 million settlement. Nice. That is not bad. Not, not surprisingly, shabby. she and Jim don't really talk that much. Their daughter now is an adult, and I guess there's just not a lot of need for it. When he wanted her to reprise the Sarah Connor character in 2019's Terminator Dark Fate, he had to leave three messages before she would return his calls. And in the third one, he mentioned that he was calling about work. Good for you. That was like the Linda magic Hamilton. word. She never would have called him back. Good for you, Linda Hamilton. Okay, so she has not married again, and since 2012 has been semi-retired and living happily in New Orleans. After filming Titanic, Jim took about a decade off from making big films. He did some TV stuff and documentaries, but mostly he did deep-sea exploration and, like, just followed his hobbies. <laughs> I mean, that's okay. Yeah, Titanic was the first billion-dollar grossing movie ever. Was it really? Mm -hmm. Wow. Until... uh well, maybe not until. It, it was the first billion-dollar grossing movie. Then um, in 2009, you might remember a little movie called Avatar, which not only really brought on the 3D, like creating movies to be watched in 3D, this actually pushed a lot of theaters to install that technology. And he's a vision. He is a creative visionary. Yeah, well, it shattered Titanic's record. <gasps> Did it really? It grossed $2.74 billion worldwide. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Almost a billion in U.S. and like in North America. Holy US cats. Yeah, it spawned some kind of sprawling dream of tech-heavy sequels that are theoretically planned for release starting in 2021, maybe. But 
Cameron's had a bunch of projects that he would pitch and then say, but we we can't actually make it right now because we don't have the technology to do it. So like, I think Avatar even was like 10 years from idea to actually him feeling like, yeah, like they could technically do it. So yeah, so we may have just a lifetime of Avatar sequels from James Cameron coming out. As an artist, sometimes you start something or you have an idea and you're like, I don't know how to do that. So you go and do 78 other things. Uh, Definitely a visionary. Definitely a visionary. Um, Maybe. And it does. the greatest husband in the world. Yeah. Definitely a visionary. it, It seems like he maybe has done some growing up. Like he and his wife are vegans now. They're very... Uh, into like environmental causes there's all there are good things you can say about jim cameron beyond the fact that he makes really good movies like it makes he, people pee in their wetsuits and makes people pee in their wetsuits <laughs> adult right. adult humans how many trash cans as trash cans go for oh. the Linda Hamilton, Jim Cameron nightmare fest of a delusional marriage and divorce, <laughs> I'm giving it 50 million trash cans, the settlements, oh, um, sure. but made of that liquid metal that the T-1000 Terminator uh, <laughs> model that from T2 is, that was like, that itself was a gigantic innovation in filmmaking. That was something that he couldn't have done like 10 years before build it burn it down <laughs> blow it up recreate it as something else <laughs> yeah so there that's, that is fantastic that's uh i know listeners have asked for that one uh in the it's facebook group of a trashy divorce right there well so, done what a weird story like most people are motivated by the idea that they want people to say nice things about them <laughs> this does not come up for jim cameron that often not jimbo <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break. Sure. And we'll be back with another complicated genius creative who I'm trying to may Im- or may not be kind of a jerk. Trying to imagine who it might be. Ha. Ha. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and... I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns, Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right, Alicia, you've got another 
Myth of the Great Man. Often requested trashy divorce this week of John and Cynthia Lennon. Hmm. Which really, besides the incredible fame of one half of our couple and the other half of our couple hiding in obscureness, is really the story of a first marriage. Young kids striving, doing their thing. Baby happens, they get married, it seems like the thing to do, right? You're in love and happy, but you are children, and there is a whole world of nonsense that is about to come for both of you. Bless both of your sweet, angelic baby hearts. Hmm. Our bride, Cynthia, born September 9th, 1939. She's a Virgo girl. Virgos organize the world. Okay. She will organize at least... John's life enough to be there for his breakthrough. Cynthia is a Lancashire girl, born in Blackpool. She's the youngest kid. She has two older brothers. Her dad works for General Electric. And they're like most assuredly middle class. Like they're doing pretty well. Good things are happening. They have their things like all families, but it's a normalish family structure and all that until dad, after a long battle from lung cancer. Sadly dies when Cynthia is 17. Her older brothers are already out of the house. And dad on his deathbed tells Cynthia, you're going to need to get a job to help out your mom. And Cynthia's dreams of art school are finished. Dad dies. And mom is like, nope, you earned a spot in the Liverpool College of Arts and you're going to go. So mom takes the master bedroom of the home, clears it out, puts in four beds And rents that room to apprentice electricians to make ends meet. And off Cynthia goes to college. Yeah. Cynthia doesn't go anywhere. She lives at home, but she has to get up first in the morning because she's fighting four other dudes for the bathroom. But Cynthia is in art school. Onward. Let's do this. So I want you to imagine a 17-year-old Hermione Granger in September of 1957 First in the door to all of her art classes. Her supplies are ready to go all proper-like. Cynthia is a student into what she is doing and making her art dreams come true. She wants to be a commercial artist or a teacher. She doesn't care. She just likes the art. And in college, Cynthia needs to take a lettering class. So there Cynthia is, Hermione Granger, with all of her pens and pencils and supplies lined up. And this is where we will leave Fair Cynthia in 1957 on the Trashy Divorces Depot, getting ready for her lettering Right, class. with Harry and Ron figuring out how they can <laughs> cheat their way through lettering class. Welcome to meet our groom, John Lennon. He's a Libra boy, born October 9th, 1940. In whatever way you cut it, John has a crap childhood. You will find the brighter points, but this kid is not handed a great hand to play from, from the deck of life cards. He is talented. He is a genius. He is going to do well enough to make the most of a shit hand. But in the process of becoming that success, he's going to leave a lot of damage in his wake. Which is where... We all know these kids that are hurting growing up and they hurt as adults. So they take out those hurts in a variety of ways on the people in their world. 
bad things have happened to me. I don't know how to process. Right. I'm going to turn this into I'm really mean to you. You can understand why John does what he does. It doesn't make it good. Oh, it doesn't sure. make it right. But you under. Okay. John's mom, Julia, is pregnant. His dad is a merchant seaman, but absent. Sometimes checks come. Sometimes they don't. By the time dad is back, mom is pregnant with another child that does not belong to John's father. So it's tumultuous. Mm -hmm. Mom's sister, Aunt Mimi, Mimi, who will be known as Mean Aunt Mimi from this point in the story, really does say, like, nothing good is happening for this child. So she gains custody of John. Mimi doesn't have kids. She's married to Uncle George. They get custody of John until Dad gets John back. And then Mom Julia follows and john is made to decide at like five years old who he wants to be with and he's going to dad and then julia <sighs> makes a sound and then like uh, yeah that's miserable that, it's all bad uh, john will live most of his childhood with aunt mimi and george mean aunt mimi mean aunt mimi god mom julia will visit and probably mimi and george are doing the best they can with a hurt kid to develop his talents, whatever they may be, because it's certainly not music. John, you need a proper job. There's never been a successful musician. You need to find something that isn't this to get into. But John really likes acting. He's actually offered a spot at, like, Royal Shakespeare Company, but he likes drawing a lot, too. But Julia kind of comes back into his life, and Julia is a fantastic banjo player. So she teaches John how to play a banjo. And she's really good. So there's no, wow, you're doing great, John. There's no complimenting John because Julia is always going to be better. And like John's sister talks about this. And I think there's something there, there. But anyway, soon the banjo is guitar, which is in fact delivered to Julia mom's house because it can't go to Mimi's house because Mimi doesn't approve. Mimi, oh, Mimi. Okay. interesting. Yeah. So soon, John is hanging with his mates, crashing into clubs to see bands, being a general ruffian in Liverpool. He's forming groups that practice in Mean Aunt Mimi's kitchen. But oh, tra- I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure Mean Aunt Mimi loved that. Well, Mean Aunt Mimi, like it's such a like, challenge to put Mean Aunt Mimi in perspective because Mean Aunt Mimi is kind of mean. But I don't know you what you do with a kid who. Maybe ADHD, like not concentrating on his things, has dealt with a shit ton of trauma and has no healthy processing for any of that. Yeah. Okay, even worse. As John is getting to know his mom again, Julia is killed by a car crossing the street in July of 1958. His mother is... His mother. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. So both Cynthia and John will lose a parent at the age of 17. Oh, wow. Mm Mm-hmm. So now you have John as a hurt kid who was doing some healing because he was getting to know his mom again, most assuredly hurting now in an entirely different way. John will fail all of his O-levels. Mean Aunt Mimi will go to see a man about a school and convinces the Liverpool Art School to let John in. Mm -hmm. In the fall of that term, 
But John's group, the Quarry Men, have been playing all summer long. Like, it's all happening. But John will take a lettering class, too, that year. So let's bring our couple together. I'm going to take this from Cynthia's account, because there's a great BBC interview with her in it when she releases her book. Because she writes about her perspective, because she's been sent a thousand books on the Beatles. And so she says that, you know what, I guess they're all factually right, but they're emotionally wrong. I've read so many of those books. And when I've read those books, I didn't know who that person is. And I'm reading about me. I thought it was about time. I put my perspective down. Hopefully it will fit into the other words written about him. I take it in big chunks. I'm going to upset people because they have this preconceived idea. But this is the truth from mine and Julian's point of view. Like the best you can do is put in the essence of the heart and soul. You can't put in every second of every day. If this is nothing else, it is my swan song to tell about this relationship. So Cynthia says, that happens really quickly. One minute we are students at the university broke. Like Cynthia's on a grant and like, They're hungry and poor and talented, and it's the dream of every young artist couple. So Cynthia is sitting in that class, Virgo girl, with all of her proper supplies, and John barrels in with nothing and proceeds to nick her stuff all semester long. Harry. And she's quite proper, but John is kind of turning into a teddy boy by this time. It's like the look, the slicked shoes and the t-shirts and the okay so both have lost their parents in the previous year and cynthia will say because hindsight is everything but i never understood him but i began to like him and one day john comes into the empty classroom where hermione is waiting for class but he comes in with a guitar and sings ain't she sweet and she's like that's the one for me (laughs) And John really has this thing for Bridget Bardot. So Cynthia's going to dye her hair blonde. Okay, so there's a party at the end of term, and there's dancing, and they dance. Not dancing. Dancing. And that's it. He's besotted with her. She's besotted with him. The first Christmas card he sends her has, like, I love you written 50,000 times. (sighs) Like, they're 18, and it's young love. (laughs) So they share this creative thing, and he has his band, but he's an artist too, and he really likes to draw, but he's also a hurt kid. So his drawings and humor are mean and cruel. They're mean to gay people, they're mean to handicapped people, they're mean to everyone. And Cynthia, who is so nice, even after all of the crap that happens, will say like he just couldn't express himself. His humor was cruel. Nothing nice came out of his artistry at that time. He was mean-spirited. He could not express true emotion. And again, beauty of hindsight. She feels that she was never able to draw John out. She will go on to say that she cushioned a lot of blows for him, which was about the best that she could do. She could never get further into his psyche. And the real John does not reveal himself until his death. Because at this time, she says he just wanted to shock people. This is how Hurt Kid gets your attention. He's an exhibitionist, and as soon as you thought you had him figured out, he would do something to shock you again just to prove you didn't know him at all. 
Like there's a kid I knew in high school that's so much like this. It was it, it was interesting to write this story because hmm. I kept thinking about that kid. So John's band's bandmates are everything. They're a unit. And one of those bandmates, Stuart Sutcliffe, will dance with Cynthia one night at a party. And John is kind of a jealous guy. And John is going to hit Cynthia. And she's been aware that he gets in fights with guys. But it's never crossed a violence against her until now. Hmm. And they're done. Mm-hmm. For three months. Okay. Where John comes back with profuse apologies and his delicate ego and all the pain. And I mean, when you held up three fingers, I thought you were going to say three days, which no, does not seem months. like enough time. Cynthia loves him. She takes him back. He's desperately sorry and he could not help himself. She says he didn't do it again. It was the first and last time he lifted a hand to her. But he really, really could not hold his booze. It made him behave badly. But he's so talented. Cynthia will say he was so flawed in his behavior, but he was a genius. He had such a disjointed, fractured childhood, and that Aunt Mimi was mean. All the women in his family were tough cookies. He was so complex. Even in those days, there was a huge chip on his shoulder, and he never knew how to rid himself of his demons. No two days were ever the same. What was it like living with him? She said, I was on a knife's edge. When he was good, he was very good. When he was bad, he was rotten. I think time does help Cynthia create a little bit of understanding in this because she will go on to say his early life was so packed with trauma and extremes. And she says something I thought was just really good because this is kind of how I feel. But if you take a child from one to seven, then you have the man you'll become. That's the man you're going to be. Like, childhood is going to cook you in the patterns that you have. And Cynthia believes those crucial years in John's development will scar him for life. So things roll on merrily enough, like you do in Liverpool in the early 1960s. And it turns out John's band may be like, woo, becoming a real thing. Is it still the quarryman? No, I think they're Beatles by this okay. point. July 1962, just as mm, yeah. the Beatles are becoming a thing. What happens? Baby? Cynthia's pregnant. Okay. And John is like, we must get married. <laughs> I mean, but... And Cynthia says... <laughs> how, old, like, how old-fashioned. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what you did in those days. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. And we wanted to get married. Thank God it happened, because I have a son who's fantastic, but... Not everyone was as keen as John and Cynthia on this marriage. So Brian Epstein and the boys in the band are like, all right, John. All right, mate. We love the love that you and Cynthia have, but uh, you can't tell any of our stark, raving, lunatic fans that you're married and about to be a father. Right. Because that would ruin the marriage. So it's cool if you get married. But we need you to keep it hidden and undercover. Keep it on the DL. Cool, cool. Okay, Mean Aunt Mimi. Big fan of this union. Will accuse Cynthia of getting pregnant on purpose. Mm. Because now that John may become something as a musician, which would never be a viable career option all those years ago, Cynthia, of course, is the pregnant gold digger. Mean Aunt Mimi doesn't want a thing to do with any of this. And she tells John, like, you're stupid. You've made a fool of yourself and us, and you're throwing your life away. And Cynthia is like, 
I didn't <laughs> want this. I wanted to finish college. Right. I failed my final exams. Like this was devastating to me, but this is what you did when this happened in 1962. Yeah. Mean Aunt Mimi will not attend the wedding. Cynthia's mother is in Canada, so she doesn't attend either. Their wedding day. It is John and Cynthia, George Paul Ringo, and Brian Epstein. No family, no photographers. The guy that married them looked as though he was doing a funeral. Oh, God. There's a pneumatic drill that's working on construction in the room next door. Oh, my God. She says the whole experience was bizarre, but quite beautiful and innocent. They all had on their suits. They were all white-faced and Mm panic-stricken. She had on an old suit. Her hair was up, which she never did. Brian orders a car for her. They go to Reese's for a wedding lunch and have the meal of the day, which is soup, roast chicken, and trifle. That particular eating establishment has no wine license, so everybody has water or lemonade. Wow. This is August 1962. Trifle is a dessert, right? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Send us letters, English listeners. Yorkshire pudding is like a biscuit thing. So I... It's all confusing. The marriage in the beginning is great. It's lovely. Uh, John's anger had disappeared. The band was breaking through. They're on top of the world. Life is good. There's no angst. Yeah. Yeah. They're breaking through and then it becomes fame. And Cynthia's like, it was like being in the eye of a storm. We had a mansion. I had responsibilities. I had gardeners. I had housekeepers. I was 23. What the fuck did I know? Yeah. My task was looking after Julian, Mm -hmm. the son who's born in April 1963, and running a home and doing fan mail and, like, taking care of the business of a home. When John was away, it was good. He was happy. He was making money. When he came home, he was happy to be off the road. It was fine. Again, hindsight. She will say, I was so naive. What you don't know, you don't worry about. (laughs) He got up to a lot. But they were all doing it and up to it. The family only travels once with the band. This is to America in 1964. All the wives at that time, girlfriends, families, come along. Cousins are crawling out of the woodwork. It's the first and last time that family travels with the Beatles. It's not a great tour. Because the band is used to fans crawling up their drain pipes. Mm -hmm. Wives are not. Right, right, right. Okay. So there's Cynthia, home and hearth. And she says, it didn't occur to me at the time that he'd go with anyone else. He was so excited when he came home and happy to be home. Mm -hmm. I was happy to have my husband back. Right. Again, so naive. Uh, But that's not a trope yet. They're the first big group to make it. I was going to say, yeah, they're the first rock stars. So, Uh, Which aligns with the advent of the birth control pill. Mm -hmm. Right? So uh, Paul McCartney has this great quote, and I may have to do John and Paul's trashy divorce, but he's like, it was like Moses opened up the waters and said, have a good time, boys. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I'll have to find the exact quote, but it was great. So, like, they're all shenanigans and antics but brian epstein's always there to kind of hold them back from falling off the ledge too much 
Until John will meet a conceptual artist and fellow exhibitionist, Yoko Ono. Hmm. Aquarius Gala, November of 1966. And there's something there, because soon Yoko is calling John at home and then visiting at home. That seems cool. And Cynthia's like, uh, I'm right here yeah. and so is your son. Right. And John is like, oh, babe, she just needs money for her avant-garde bullshit. Maybe, maybe not. Okay, so liquor wasn't good enough for John to escape his demons. So let's add a new drug into the mix. LSD. Okay. So John has a new, whole new spiral to go down. So remember this tags back to, I don't know, other spider webs we've talked about. George Harrison and Patty Boyd. We did this on Dirty Digs about the ashram with the Maharishi. Like, mm -hmm. okay, lots of spider webs. But in August 1967, as the Beatles were getting on board to go visit the Maharishi, right? Brian Epstein dies, their manager, their friend. But John has always kind of been a dick to Brian because he was gay and Jewish, which are two of the things he likes to draw cartoons about. But now Brian's dead. So John is going to loop on acid to right. a whole new spiral. The Beatles are going to hit the ashram in India in February 1968. There's a whole dirty digs about that. But by the end of that, remember, John goes to the post office every day looking for letters from Yoko Ono. He moves out of the room with Cynthia altogether, gets his own new room, and he ignores her for the rest of the trip. Unsurprisingly... Cynthia takes a holiday hmm. after they get back from the ashram. Is she having a certain feeling about the status of their relationship, maybe? Kind of, yeah. And during that time in May of 1968, John is going to invite Yoko over to visit. They have a sesh. And when Cynthia comes home, Yoko Ono is in her bathrobe and drinking tea like it's the most natural thing in the world with her husband. Hmm. At this point, mm -hmm. Cynthia's kind of done. Divorce is filed for, and the marriage between John and Cynthia will become final in November 1968. So, six-ish years? Six-ish years. Okay. One child. Cynthia in this interview is asked, like, why did he leave? And she said, I knew we were both walking a different path. He wanted to go one way. I wanted to go another. He was taking a lot of drugs and stopped working. And through taking LSD, his vision of the future of himself did not include what he already had, which was us. She says he was flawed in many ways. He was trying to find himself and a soulmate. He had such mad ideas. And this is where Cynthia, like, almost crosses the line. Maybe Yoko has talent, but that's debatable. John was the one with the talent. And he didn't need a mumsy partner at that point. He needed a mate. And she was the nearest thing to a mate he'd found in a woman. But no other person should own another person's talent. Hmm. So the bad part about this, when John leaves, Julian is humiliated and rejected. Uh, Cynthia says everyone was eject rejected. When John goes on to marry Yoko, old friends and family, he pushed aside. John thought Yoko was the most important thing in the world. And even though John and Julian were getting to know each other before John died, like, 
most of Julian's memories are that John is not there or he is rejected right. or it is just terrible loss. So, of mm-hmm. course, Yoko Ono is blamed. Drugs are blamed. And Cynthia really is a sympathetic character because there's a 1976 letter that John writes to Cynthia. Like, I guess still in 1976, they're hashing it out. And John writes, as you and I well know, our marriage was over long before the advent of LSD or Yoko Ono. That's reality. Their divorce is settled out of court with John agreeing to give Cynthia an initial lump sum, a small annual payment and custody of Julian. As messy as their breakup was, it does give us one of the most classic Paul McCartney penned Beatles songs. Hey Jude. Hey Jude. Which was written to help little Julian because it was originally Hey Jules to cope with his parents' separation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so all that's tragic. And John is going to remain on the outs with Cynthia and Julian for a long time. Like very little contact. And when it does happen, it's all kind of very awkward turtle. So here's where we're going to leave Cynthia and Julian, five years old and 68. Because remember, Cynthia and John divorce in November. Yoko will miscarry a child a few weeks after that divorce is final. John and Yoko will marry March 20th, 1969. And they're doing their thing. And Yoko is proving whatever, muse, mother, lover, everything to John. And by 1970, the Beatles... Right? They're the breakup of rock and roll. Right. The world hates Yoko for breaking up the Beatles. I don't think that's the case. Yeah. You have John as a hurt boy doing hurtful things his whole life, and I think he puts Yoko in the center of that, but I think she's secondary to some other things going on. But between the ashram and the Beatles breakup, right, with Yoko, his heart's going to go on, and Cynthia's long gone, and... He's not close to his kid, and Yoko is air and earth and moon and sun itself. Until John Lennon is going to go on this thing, which he calls The Lost Weekend, which is named for the famous 1945 film starring Ray Milland as an alcoholic writer struggling to overcome addiction and return to his creative process. In this Lost Weekend Mm -hmm. of John Lennon's, there's a breakup with Yoko, antics, shenanigans, And eventually a reunion with Yoko at the end of The Lost Weekend, which will take, you want to guess, how long The Lost Weekend is? Mm, I'm guessing it's longer than a weekend. 18 months. (laughs) 18 months. Wow. So from the summer of 1973 to... Like the baker's dozen of weekends. (laughs) Early 1975, (laughs) John and Yoko are separated. It's four years into their marriage. John Lennon has found himself a new muse. Yikes. Mumsy assistant. Oh, my God. It is, in fact, their assistant, a lady named May Pang. May will say that this lost weekend that takes 18 months will happen with Yoko's blessing, which is one way to do it, I guess. Yoko will tell the Telegraph in 2012, the affair was not something that was hurtful to me. I needed a rest. I needed space. Can you imagine every day of getting this vibration from people of hate? You want to get out of that. I started to notice that he became a little restless on top of that. So I thought it's better to give him a rest and let me rest. May Pang was very intelligent, attractive woman, and extremely efficient. I thought they'd be okay. I mean, 
After four years of marriage, you're like, go have fun for a year and a half. I trust you enough to do that. Have a good time, buddy. I need to take it. We were on a break. Yeah, or <laughs> maybe she didn't think he'd come back and that was going to be okay too. I don't know. Yoko thinks they're going to be okay, which right. I guess is great depending on your definition of okay because John Lennon is going to drink heavily and abuse drugs during this time. First and foremost, he hooks up with uh, <laughs> Phil Spector, which is awesome. Yeah. John will get kicked out of A&M Records for a bottle of liquor down the console. Another fun time Ooh. happens at the Troubadour in 1974. John Lennon and Harry Nielsen get thrown out after heckling the Smothers Brothers oh in their God. set one night. Oh, my God. John Lennon will blame it on the Brandy Alexanders and that Harry Nielsen didn't stop him. Because normally John he has really somebody is a there jerk, to say, he? enough, John. Right. Enough. Stop. Productive enough time, though, for John. He'll complete three albums. He'll produce an album for Harry Nilsson and Ringo Starr, too. He'll even get together and jam with Paul McCartney one night. It is the only time that is known that they play together after the 1970 breakup to John's death in 1980. It even sparks discussion of a reunion between the two. Of course. And an upcoming trip to New Orleans planned in early 1975. May Pang says that John Lennon is excited about it. He keeps talking about it. Like, I can't wait to get back together with my buddy Paul. And then Yoko calls. Hey, John, I have something to end your nicotine addiction. Come back to the Dakota in New York. This It's not heroin, is it? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Let me give you this heroin. It'll help you quit smoking. So even though John and Yoko have been apart for the lost weekend that last 18 months, they've talked every day. John Lennon comes home, begs to return home, which is a twist, right? Like, I needed a break, and now you're begging me to come back. But May is out, Yoko's back in, and John and Yoko will have their son, Sean, born in October 1975. And to add insult to injury to Julian, I'm, I may misparaphrase this, but John will tell Julian, like, your brother was planned. He was conceived of love and the child that we wanted. You were conceived of a whiskey bottle. It's What the so hell bad. was wrong with that guy? Mind games, man. So, mind games. This is what Yoko is going to tell Playboy in a joint interview in 1980 about their decision to reunite. She says, it slowly started to dawn on me that John was not the trouble at all. John was a fine person. It was society that had become too much. We laugh about it now, but we started dating again. I wanted to be sure. I'm thankful for John's intelligence, that he was intelligent enough to know that this was the only way that we could save our marriage, not because we didn't love each other, but because it was getting too much for me. So, John, at this point, becomes a family man. Yoko's like, you want to stay with me? You need to be a house husband. John doesn't work. He takes a five-year hiatus from music and is a house husband. He feeds Sean every meal, takes a picture of him every day, like night and day difference. John is just starting to release music again in the fall of 1980. He and Yoko will release Double Fantasy in November of that year. And December 8th, 1980... Oh, there's a prediction. 
that happens in 1966. I'm sorry, I forgot to talk about this. Cynthia and John get a letter from a psychic saying that John is going to be killed by a gun in the United States. So that 1966 prediction does come true. I mean, not a terrible bet about cause of death in the U.S. (laughs) Yeah, well, John shot in front of the Dakota on December 8th, 1980, which is very sad. And I think Cynthia kind of has a point. Like, death becomes a legend. Like, he became much more... And he struggles with it. He knows. He's like, he didn't realize until Yoko that it was even wrong to be mean to a woman. Like, he just didn't. So Yoko develops him. I think he was a a complicated man in development. Certainly a musical genius. I didn't even do trash cans. I totally forgot. It just just hit me. It would be a lot. That Especially the stuff he said to his first child. Uh, no, he's not great. And he blames all these like he can't leave the States because if he leaves the States, he can't come back. And honestly, like the FBI is after him. Nixon is after him because he and Yoko are protesting the Vietnam right. War. Like there's so much to this story. And if I didn't talk about your favorite part, I'm really sorry. <sighs> we'll talk about it on Trashy Tidbits. There's probably a Trashy Melodies coming up with the breakup of John and Paul. I mean, there's so much to the story, but I wanted to concentrate on poor Cynthia because to me, it's a first marriage just gone wrong. And is she still alive? She did pass away. She did go on to marry a few more times. And I don't know, fame and yeah, musical genius and hurt kid hurting others. And it's such a such a story of Imago. Yeah, and their fame was unprecedented. Unprecedented. I mean, like, just the, there was no way to anticipate the ways that their lives would change. You know what? Trash cans, I'm going to let you each imagine how many (laughs) trash cans it would be. And I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round for you to let me know what you have imagined the trash cans to be for this one. That's all I got. That's the trashy divorce of John and Cynthia Lennon. It was complicated because yeah. you lo- like you love John Lennon's music, but man, you know that kid, that hurt oh, yeah. kid who hurts others, and you, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's all too bad. That's yeah. You you tell me. Pretty- I will let you imagine the amount of trash cans for that, and you let me know. Yeah, pretty much all parts of that are. Are too bad. Hey, is it? It's time to draw from our mugs. That's another time? Trashy Divorces episode. Be sure to tune in on uh, Patreon bit.ly slash Trash Candy Quarantine for all the free trash candy just laying there. Yeah, it's, so that's um, bit.ly slash Trash Candy Quarantine. Plug that into any browser. It will take you to the catalog of free stuff that we have pulled from behind the paywall to hopefully make this very strange experience we're all going through a little i don't know less taxing less front of mind do you want to it's free trash candy if you need something to listen to it can keep you occupied for a little while and there's lots of different veins of threads you can pull yeah okay in our season six continuing no rules it's time to pull for next week right and we're just gonna give a hint we're not gonna tell you the names that we draw we're just gonna give a hint Correct. Okay, I go first next week, so I'll, I'll draw. Okay. Oh, this is the one. Ooh. Ooh. 
Do you want to see? Yeah. Mm. Ooh. Ah, uh, it's a it's a divorce in high fashion. Mm. It's it. All- yeah, I don't think I can think of anything. Y'all else guessed to- too fast this week, so there you go. Yeah, I'm gonna keep my clues cagier. All right. Who have you got? Um, someone who can drive us home. Ooh, good one. That? Is that yeah? All right. Nice. All right. All right. We'll be back next Sunday. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and being awesome. Y'all are doing great. We love you so much. Wash your hands. Edmund the cat also would like to thank you. He's here on the table with us. Biting your paper. Are you going to remember who you drew if he eats your paper? Yeah. Well, I can always go back and listen to my hint. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers, everybody. Thank you for tuning in for yet another week of Trash Candy. You're the very best. We'll be back with you next Sunday. Sure. And if you celebrate any of the religious holidays happening now, happy. Yeah, happy everything. Happy everything. More, keep it trashy, more too. Next week. Yeah, keep it trashy. <laughs> I mean, don't, don't. Don't celebrate so much you forget to keep seriously. it trashy. Um, careful with, like, purifying yourself. <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> All right. Um, back next week. Bye, friends. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all. <laughs>